0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. I'm Russell Brand. Thanks for bearing with us while I had a holiday. I understand you've got all sorts of luminary podcasts, Shot Down Your Luxies, Cosmic Milkshake or Mystical Milkshake, the thing with uh, Reza Aslan and Rain Wilson. These They're pretty cool, those guys, and I know them both. Uh, this week I spoke with Angela Nagel. Angela is a writer and cultural commentator whose work has appeared in the Baffler, Current Affairs, the Irish Times and many other journals. I was turned on to her by my mate Pope, who's a comedian who works in an old folks home. He's a care home, I guess you call it. He's a pretty interesting and out there character. I like him a lot. And then I'm checked in about angela nagel having read her book kill all normies with adam curtis and asked if he'd read it he said of course he's read it and he knows her a bit and he thinks it's it's a brilliant book the book is about the online culture wars from 4chan to tumblr to trump and the alt-right it's earned her the title an old leftist idea of what a young leftist should be Oh, by her detractors. Oh, that's her detractors. We're putting her detractors words in. And one of the brightest lights in a new generation of left writers who have declared independence from intellectual conformity by her champions. But me personally, what I thought was, was a bloody, brilliant, thorough, in-depth book that traced how marginal ideas from the the, uh, online world have infiltrated what used to be called mainstream culture, but surely now these terms are no longer relevant as the boundaries start to melt okay well we'll get into that in a minute i've just got to promote something at you i'm doing this commune wellness summit online deepak trope on side alongside Deepak Chopra, Wim Hof, Byron Katie, and many other teachers. That's this December. The Commune commune Wellness Summit is a free 10-day online event featuring 25 of the world's foremost experts on health and wellness, including an introduction from me. Each day offers a keynote lesson and a daily practice so that step-by-step you can bring techniques into your life that lead to greater ease and joy. You can sign up and take part in the summit for free. Free. By visiting onecommune.com. Like... I went to a yoga class earlier today the and they said, it's 15 quid for one class, 30 quid for limitless pass for the next two weeks. I went, I'll just take the 15 quid, thanks. But if I said it's free, I'd have been all over it. This is actually something that's literally costing you nothing. So go visit um, onecommune.com. Also, have a look at my YouTube channel for more of them spiritual videos I do and clips from the podcast. Make sure to subscribe and get. Notified, have we got any comments to what was the last podcast that I don't even remember? It was Neil deGrasse Tyson, of whom Diane Evans said, Great interview on Under the Skin with Neil deGrasse Tyson. You even got a mention at the beginning, who? M. and NYTV. You even got a mention at the beginning, Rear Future podcast. Thanks, Rusty Rockets, for interviewing such fantastic people. Emma Kenny. Oh, yeah, Emma Kenny. Yeah, yeah, Emma Kenny's amazing. Leah F kasoria uh, says uh, science is not objective because what how you ask predefines the answer S- set with apologies to Neil tyson and two nazism built on you on the us science of eugenics well these are some very succinct observations Sydney Anisio says one of the best guests it's always nice to see two smart people talking about anything and Audrey Watley Payne goes I really like how you are open and a real human being thanks you have your views then you actually sit there and listen and take everything in then share how you process what you heard all ideas opinions and views should be shared in this manner hey thanks a lot I've been trying my hardest. Jason Napier go by far my favourite Tyson interview today you're an amazing host and just gave a huge fan. Thanks for that. Oh, thanks, Jason. I'm terribly flattered. Jacob Karuna goes, Wonderful crossover. Two great minds. wouldn't have expected to see this. It's so great to see a spiritual person and a scientist like these two have a civil discussion about such a complex topic. And then the masterminds here simply love the interview, love the content. Keep up, my friend. So there's... Some, a, a, Just a raft of very, very pleasant comments right there. And now uh, an interview that I'm very excited about. I'm very excited to learn from Angela because, as I say, this book, Kill All Normies, it's, there's so many bits where it makes sense. You know, if you're confused about Brexit, if you're confused about Donald Trump, if you're confused about the rise of identity politics, if you're confused about your place in the world and the complexity around old labels and old ideas, then... uh You should read that book Kill All Normies, and I think you'll get a lot from listening to Angela Nagel now, so let's jump into that. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes,
1: that's that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never
0: the boss. Doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Angela Nagel, thank you so much for coming on Under the Skin. My friend Pope recommended your book, and then I checked in with Adam Curtis, who, the filmmaker who had read it, and he was most impressed by you.
1: Oh, that's great. Thank you so much.
0: What I, it helped me to understand was... Uh, a Well you for the first time helped me to understand some very complex, diverse and diffuse ideas and how they were coalescing in, in, into the s- sort of mainstream polarisation that we're experiencing like right now. We're right in the middle of what have become termed like culture wars or sort of political breakdown. And um, what I'd risk... I just firstly want people to understand... um. Like, uh, the sort of an overview of Kill All Normies, and then, um, perhaps you can, I guess, from there on in, tell me what's happened since you've written the book. Can you, first of all, just tell us a bit about, um, like what's in there?
1: Yeah, well, I think it came out over two years ago now, so it was kind of, um, I, I was kind of taking a bet in a way on publishing something very quickly at the very beginning, uh, of the 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 coverage of this I think I was the first person to write a book about it I don't think another book came out before it so um, so one of the downsides is that in a way the book is kind of a bit messy it it almost feels like um, like a collection of of observations without necessarily a, a very coherent thesis as such you know and it uh, it's also not really I think maybe unlike some of the other things that have been written on the subject, is not really trying to produce um, a very straightforward feeling of disgust or something like that in the audience, you know what I mean? Like, in the way that particularly the far right tends to be written about as, like, um, anthropology or something like that, you know? Like, uh, but anyway, I mean, I guess it was like a collection of observations at the time, um about online subcultures that were changing as they do all the time and have changed a huge amount since like it's interesting to see some of the major figures I wrote about and even based chapters on are all kind of deplatformed now. now uh, and they were huge rising stars at the time
0: well like Milo for example yes
1: Milo I mean Milo had just been on I think um Bill Maher's show so that's like you've really kind of made it when you been on a show like that, you know, uh, and then within no time, his whole career totally gone, his book deal gone, wiped off of Twitter, you know, um, and he never really recovered from that either. Um, another character, Gavin McInnes, who, who's, I think one of the founders of Vice magazine, you know, again, a huge career, uh, and Vice was such a kind of, um, you know, tastemaker and a kind of generation defining thing. And uh, that also t- was totally transformed. And he's uh, he-, he he's largely been you know he's now got all these court cases. Um, he's uh, really struggling. Uh, so so uh, Alex Jones is another one. You know. So all all of this all- the whole landscape has totally changed. But I guess really uh, trying trying to kind of um, if like summarize it or something. Uh, I was looking at these as I guess kind of countercultures in terms of the way that the internet had been written about previously. So the idea was very much that you could have online communities as an alternative in a way to real life communities, um, that you would have these global communities and people would be, um, you know, information would be more freely exchanged and, um, And so on. But instead, what you have in these situations is this uh, almost like a product of social alienation uh, manifesting itself online.
0: Yes. And one of the things I liked tonally about your book was the not total lack of judgment, but at least a kind of a sympathetic approach to uh, like to aspects of Internet culture that have become in some Casey's quite rightly very much maligned, like in cells and the the, uh, the denizens of the four chan space. You at least uh, offered an explanation to how how these kind of um, how these kind of factions are emerging, and in fact continually paired them with movements or, or like on what would traditionally be known as the left. And is that just a journalistic integrity, or is that you're how come you were able to do that
1: I think one of the things is that because I had actually been looking at that world particularly 4chan and things like that for years maybe I was a little bit desensitized to it mm-hmm. um, or I just didn't feel like I don't think it's I, I don't like really to, um, to to be lectured to when I'm reading myself you know so or, or moralized to in some way I mean, so much of what's been written about it since ha- I think is going to age really badly and actually just looks quite ridiculous. Um, so, for example, um, you know, when when all the major figures of, of these um, kind of far-right movements were had already been written about and journalists didn't have anything left to write about, they ended up writing articles about, like, how we all need to be really worried because the right are taking over Renaissance fairs. I remember that being one in particular. And I thought, you know, this is not like, it, this is not something most people are worried about really. But um, but yeah, the, the, that kind of tone of, um, uh, I don't know, I, thought that I just thought, felt there was something like too moralizing about that tone. And I also thought, You know, back then, even though I was very critical of the idea that you can simply hide behind irony, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm so aware that you can do things ironically and then sort of somehow accidentally end up meaning them at some point. And the person engaged in that process is not necessarily sure at what point that happens, you know? Uh, And it is complicated.
0: I really, it was interested as well about what you said about right wing transgressivism and how that was a presumed leftist uh, stance or attitude, and the the, the easy ad adoption of transgression by the right demonstrated that our assumption that it was a sort of a leftist position in the first place was always kind of ridiculous, that they were something very punk about <clears throat> figures like, like the ones you've listed, really, Ga- Gavin McKeon's Milo. There was something you know, prankster, careless, reckless, and sort of like there was dark mischief in them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly since um, you know, 68, um, one of the ideas that, that was very influential on, on the left, um, as it kind of moved away from the, the, the the goals of the old left and much more into cultural questions, it became very preoccupied. I mean, this is a real Adam Curtis theme, so I'm not surprised. (laughs) It is probably why he liked it, but, um, you know, the left became very interested in, in, uh, pursuing, you know, uh, historical goals through culture. And one of the ideas was that, you know, we have this kind of internal, um, internal fascism, right? That we need to break down through, uh, you know, questioning the ways in which, repression sexual repression and you know the internalization of like patriarchy and all of these things had to be broken down but particularly the repressive element to it so lots of different figures in in, that came out of the 68 wrote about how the most important thing was actually that it wasn't the economy it wasn't like trade unions or something like that it was that people needed to kind of kill their internal fascism through, um, through, through the, the breaking down of all taboos. And that led to very quickly to some very strange places. I mean, there was, for example, um, a, a, a strong kind of strand within the 68 thing of, uh, where it was kind of veering towards pedophilia, actually, like some of the sexual revolution stuff.
0: And, um, like Ginsberg and stuff talk like Allen Ginsberg even talking about that is that right yeah like it's very hard to sort of frame that now because the cultural landscape has become so anti pedophilia for some reason it's very hard to um to reconcile the idea of someone like you know sort of a cultural god like Allen Ginsberg as being sort of you know sort of speaking ambiguously at the very least about pedophilia yeah
1: but i mean i guess the point is like um you know, a, a much a much more incisive critic, I think, was that there was a French writer called Michel and Most of his stuff isn't um, translated. I think it should be because his work is very increasingly relevant now. And he talked about how um, the spirit of 68 would kind of become... The 60s would, would kind of uh, become the perfect um, cultural complement in a way to capitalism itself, because it's uh, so much about um, the values of essentially breaking down all traditions and all, uh, and and it's a pure spirit of consumerism in a way. Um, But what I was saying in the book is like, kind of like that, but a little different, which is that transgression in itself as a virtue in and of itself has become such a fetishized, Thing, that we are often very uncritical of it and very unable to see what's actually the real political content of this. Um, so one of the funny things is that before I wrote this, uh, I noticed that a lot of the way that something like 4chan was written about and that some of the, the, the figures around that time were written about was actually very positive. Um, and the reason was not that the people writing about it agreed with them politically. It was that they they didn't notice, even though so, in one case, I mean, one of the figures had like a swastika tattoo, but it's like they didn't, they they thought it was all just transgression and countercultural uh, and that it was being edgy. And so they were simply not able to see the political content of what was right in front of them.
0: Were you saying that the kind of transgressivism that birthed by late cis, late sixties radicalism became a complement to capitalism, even in its early form, or, or or do you think it's regardless of whether it's being used by the left or right that transgressivism is a you said a sort of an affiliate of con, consumerism? Can you help me to understand that more, Angela?
1: Yeah, I think that definitely has happened because in a way, I mean the what what advertising is is trying to get you to do is is kind of have very low um uh, to be very impulsive and to give in to your desires right that's like what, what the whole point of advertising and consumerism is it's trying to get you to give in to your desires as quickly as possible and to have uh, really no values outside of that um and, uh, you know, so so it is, and, and also one thing that is significant to this and also to the, the kind of what's happened since the book came out is that I've been, I'm Irish, but I've been in America for a while. And one of the things I really didn't know when I wrote it, and I really have a better understanding of now is that the level of individual a- isolation, it, and atomization in America is very extreme. Uh, I mean, th- there's been some studies done where really large numbers of millennials, when they're asked how many friends they have, ha- say zero in America. <laughs> um, and so you have these incredibly isolated people, the the kind of, um, like back in Ireland, for example, you could say there's a kind of a mixture of the remnants of of a more traditional society with something more modern. So most people have a mixed gender, large group of friends. Most people have a large family. They know their neighbors. They go to the pub with their friends after work, that kind of thing. A lot of the time in the American context, you're dealing with people who might not have even talked to anyone in real life in a long time. People are totally isolated. Uh, It's it's very shocking, actually. And that absolutely is a factor in this um, that is much more extreme than I thought. Uh, There's a very, very strong desire for community, but people are also incredibly angry. And uh, that really produces the the feeling you get in a lot of online communities, where there's a desire to be part of them. People might spend hours and hours every single day talking to other people in the same political community online, but they can't actually realize any of these things in real life.
0: I have a few questions. One is like this isolationism or this atomization. Is this something do you since you've been in America? Have you observed it personally? Have you felt it? I mean, and sort of noticed it. Or is it mostly statistical information that sort of makes sense to you? That was my first question.
1: Yeah, I've definitely noticed it. I mean, I I, I saw the figures afterwards when I went looking for them, uh, and uh, and I wasn't that surprised by them actually. I I but I you know it was good to know I wasn't just seeing exceptions to the rule. Um, yeah, people are very. Uh, you know, so for example, when I used to look at particularly the manosphere, the kind of really anti-feminist, very, I mean, everything now is called misogyny, right? Even really stupid stuff. But, but these are genuine cases of of true w- hatred of women, pathological hatred of women. Um, and w- when I used to look at them, I, I always thought, why, like, surely these guys must have female somebody female in their lives that they like i mean they must have a sister or one friend who they knew in college or something but actually that's not true in many cases you're dealing with people who have no siblings who have bad relationships with their parents who are uh, isolated in the sense that they're probably unemployed or they may work from home that's very often the case in kind of low-paid tech stuff Um, And in many cases, they don't have any female friends because they don't have any friends at all. So they actually don't have any even real life reference for somebody who can kind of humanize, um, you know, the other side for them.
0: Do you think then in those instances, the misogyny is the is the kind of the shadow or the inversion of the lack of love that they're feeling, that they can only translate that as a kind of a denial of feminine love because that's what is absent and that's what they require. And with that unmet social and cultural need, there is a sort of a necessity to kind of make it dynamic through hatred and therefore misogyny.
1: Absolutely. And it's also another really toxic factor that is unfortunately very much a part of American culture Is that you know? I think it's probably true in Britain as well. It's certainly true in Ireland. You know, every everyone I ever knew in Ireland had like an extended group of friends, some close friends, some people they might just like uh, bump into on the street, and uh, you know. And there was there was like status was never very important. You know, like everyone kind of that I knew growing up had a pretty ordinary job. The, the, the person who had the highest status was probably like the funniest person, you know, to the extent that status was even important. In America, you have this horrible mixture of this massive downward economic pressure, uh, particularly people who got an education, but it hasn't actually helped them in any way. So you have this massive downward economic pressure, this kind of particularly like educated millennials are realizing that they don't really have a future. And then on top of that, you have this culture that's really been hollowed out of any values other than status. So for example, in the incel online world, one of the things you see most often is a resentment about having to compete, you know, like having to be like a performing monkey kind of you know, so you have to, so they have the, and then they project this onto women observing them. So it's all about, you know, women want you to be rich. They want you to have a big jaw, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, statistically it's probably true, right? Like very rich men probably have more sexual options than than like somebody who isn't rich. But again, as I say, like, if you're kind of socialized in a normal way, you're used to just blending in with a mixture of everyone who has, you know, a, a kind of a healthy social world in some way. You know, there, there isn't a situation where one person is just totally celibate throughout their entire 20s and 30s, and the other person is, like, uh. the opposite of that. You know, it, there's, there's, a much, there's much more of a norm, I think, in other societies. But in America, there's this mixture of, Really extreme status anxiety, downward economic pressure, social isolation, um, and the, the the preoccupation with status, which you kind of can't get out of because it actually is real. You know, it becomes real in the culture that everyone becomes obsessed with uh, with status, and then. There's this incredible rage, as I say, at having to be a performing monkey, at having to tick all of these boxes. I mean, I never had to think about that when I was in my teens and 20s, you know? You have a vague idea that some people are better looking than others and so on. But, like, I wasn't constantly putting myself on some kind of status hierarchy. I would have driven myself insane if I had been forced to do that. And that's what they, these people have been, you know, in many cases.
0: It, it's peculiar that the target of the rage and loathing in the cases of these self-diagnosed, but as you say, perhaps legitimately low status males has become not the hierarchies themselves, not those at the top of those economic hierarchies in the form of, say, wealthy males, say, but women it's a it's an interesting deviation. Do you think that there's a corollary between this sort of targeting of these say let's call them for the sake of um, brevity, these kind of new right groups and their loathing of the feet of females and femininity and the left's earlier abandonment of uh, 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 to sort of uh, like as you said earlier, um, economic, uh ideology and trade unionism the kind of like the left abandoned say the ordinary working people in favor of a kind of a, a the pursuit of cultural ideologies like and and now we find ourselves in a position where the right is sort of tur- like they're, they're you know where is there even though both sides of this argument talk about the elites there doesn't seem to be sort of any kind of Cohesion. It's very interesting what you said earlier as well about like you know like the sort of uprooting of tradition and 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 the fact that the the situation you're describing is worse in America than in either of our countries suggests that there is a relationship between consumerism and this kind of personal and so, social and spiritual nihilism, a kind of a complete loss of faith, a loss of structure, a loss of like uh, like deep tribal communal needs and structures that. Give us a sense of, of honour uh, 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 and and value, you know, so that there are these constructed virtues, this this uh, uh, exhibition of very contemporary and sometimes superficial virtue. Is, it, is there any sense in that tirade of language that I just unleashed? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely relevant because you know one of the things that the old left really understood was building institutions um you know conservative sort of value like old-fashioned conservative value institutions and kind of not letting institutions die but you also at some point have to build them you know and uh, the old left really did build up social institutions working class institutions um and understood you know that you know so for example if you look at some of the big um uh you know labor battles uh the 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 most uh the most powerful labor unions you know usually came from places where there was an entire infrastructure like not just a working man's club but like a you know the miners are a good example of this in britain like a you know a band like a a whole an entire town would be built around you know the, the workers in one industry Um, people, so, so there was like, everybody was very, very tightly knit and therefore solidarity was, came much more easily. You know, um, I think that what's kind of happened since is that in a way they, we kind of lost the sense of the value of of those things and, and it all kind of became much more about individual the liberation of the individual and, um, and, and then, and that that's coupled with the fact that the the disempowering of, uh, labor and the working class institutions that labor built, you know, disappeared together and nothing really replaced them. And, you know, I mean, religion has, is gone basically. And it also hasn't been replaced by anything, you know, if you think about something like, you know, we were supposed to replace families with communities, right? If the village raises the child, we didn't really do that either. Um, and so there's just sort of nothing left. Uh, and we haven't really figured that out, what, what we're going to do about that. I think that's why you're seeing a, a return to religion, actually. I mean, I'm not religious personally, but, you know, I know people who are, who are converting to Catholicism and you know, uh, people are excited about the whole Kanye West thing. And I, I do see a lot of that happening in part because, you know, what else is there? There, there actually isn't, we've destroyed all the institutions and, you know, there's not, we don't, we, and all we have is consumerism and, you know, yeah, very alienated society. I'm not the first to say that, of course, but, you know, we, we've been talking about it for some time, but we haven't actually managed to do anything about it.
0: In a sense, like agricultural societies were m- mimicking uh, our earlier tribal cultures, not least in that they were built around our obvious Dietary requirements. Then industrial societies were able to somehow mimic and imitate the these uh, much earlier tribal communities through union and the type of uh, towns built around one industry that you described. Then the next epoch, this technological revolution or evolution, has meant that we're becoming further and further atomized individualized and our identities as consumers becomes solidified and as you say there's nothing to supplement it there is no accompanying there is no sort of brass band on the village green for 4 chan you know like there's like you can't you can't build around it you can't create something that imitate you know even in this time where we sort of are, taught to question the very idea of a universal or the idea that something might be natural it seems that there's something that people are reaching for and that when they're denied it when there isn't something that at least resembles a, a, a tribal community these like like these uh, impulses lash out and become uh, somehow converted to loathing negativity it seems that there are certain requirements to being human that have been eroded now to a kind of a critical point.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you were saying earlier that the the tone of uh, the book is maybe some trying to be objective or something like that. Um, another thing, one of the reasons for that also is that I really felt like I thought it would be a mistake for people to look at these this emerging stuff online and to use it as an excuse to actually do more of everything that we're doing wrong which is precisely what's happened uh so you know in s- not taking any kind of constructive like cause for self-criticism out of it but instead to just go oh now fascism is coming so we have to you know double down on every alienating liberal bit of dogma that we have and we have to, um, you know, just never question any of these things. I mean, instead you have to say like the reason that these online communities have appeal is because they are actually questioning many things about, um, modern liberal society that deserve to be questioned, you know? So for example, a lot of the people, uh, a lot of people in, in that world are not really, um, you know, so for example, they're like deeply suspicious of the government and um, many of them are very supportive of someone like Julian Assange, right? So they're not like, um, what they are is kind of harder to define, I think, in many ways. And that deep suspicion of the government and the US security state and so on is totally justified. And, um, you know, uh, and, uh, now sometimes that might lead you to conspiracies that are not real, but, but the, the impulse to be afraid of and deeply critical of, um, the, the U.S. security state is, is, is a, is a good impulse. Um, also kind of the turn away from the desire to turn away from modern society, um, you know, is something that has inspired lots of, you know, art, great art and, you know, romanticism and things like that. Like, it's not a, just a sinister, it's not, doesn't need to be just some sinister thing. Um, so that was kind of more my feeling about it. I thought that, you know, but in the end, the journalists just totally ran with the whole story of, of the far, the emergence of the far right online. and and did exactly what I thought they shouldn't do, which was, you know, we must now double down on everything. After 2016, when Hillary Clinton lost to Trump, there was a real possibility in a moment for us to really criticize the whole kind of ideology of, like, progressive neoliberalism, if you like, that Hillary Clinton represented. That was the moment when we really should have thought twice about that and and thought about the idea that, um, you know, liberalism in the cultural realm plus, you know, capitalism is not actually the basis for building any kind of society, you know, and just being progressive, um, you know, more women in the boardrooms and so on, isn't actually going to improve the lives of the vast majority of people. But then that, and I think there was a moment where it was kind of being, people were thinking about that and they were thinking about you know, the ways in which Trump kind of totally disrupted um, the the kind of right and left spectrum in many ways with populism. Um, But then I think that a lot of people use the emergence of the far right to to, to stop that questioning process and to always say, you know, this idea is now totally taboo. Anything, you know, I mean, I see people saying things like environmentalism, is now suspect because there are kind of very anti-modern, kind of far-right movements that are environmentalists. You know, just like totally ridiculous things like this. So they strengthened all the liberal taboos that were being broken down, which is a real shame.
0: What were the what were and are these liberal taboos and? Why is there an unwillingness, do you believe, to interrogate the veracity of of that system? Why did it not take the opportunity of the recent uh, defeats in sort of broad elections to analyse itself, as it were?
1: I think it's partly an infrastructure thing. A lot of um, more left-leaning parties have this whole kind of NGO infrastructure around them, like an activist class almost around them, who will slit their throat if they don't do what they want, you know? And so a a politician will do something that he or she knows will actually not even be popular with the general public and the voters, just to appease um, these very zealous kind of activists, you know, around them. Um, and, um, there's also, but, but really it's, it's, it's a, it's a kind of form of identity politics, um, which, uh, there's a writer called Walter Ben Michaels who wrote a very good book about this kind of explaining this transition from equality as a goal, like economic equality as a goal to just diversity. So, you know, I remember particularly kind of around the time of Occupy Wall Street, the progressive stack and this kind of idea that there had to be this many women and people of color and representatives of every group on every panel and so on. And it was a constant source of fighting. I think the reason that that kind of limps on, even though it's, um, you know, we, we can see from the numbers, it doesn't actually even address the problems that it claims to be addressing. Like it doesn't, it doesn't close You know the the earnings gap between different ethnic groups and things like that so it doesn't actually help ordinary people who belong to the various uh you know ethnic groups that it claims to be helping but i think the reason it limps on is because it works perfectly if you are in the media or in academia or something like that um and you can kind of, it's a system that you can play along with very easily. So you can show, you know, your virtues publicly, and then you will get noticed, you know, you'll, you'll maybe get, you'll get things published or you'll be better, you know, more well received, um, in, in something like academia, uh, where the competition is now so tight that even one, uh, you know, unorthodox like statement means that you're totally out uh, of the possibility of ever having a career in those areas. Um, but also, you know, it just means that people who just want to, you know, show that they have, Oh, look, we have a diverse panel, you know, the, <laughs> at something that they can benefit from that directly. Um, but knowing that it's not actually going to really benefit society at large. Uh, I mean, one of the things people are talking about right here now, they're kind of freaking out about a little bit is that, um, one poll has just come out suggesting that Trump has, is, is, has an unusually for a Republican unusually high popularity among black voters, and media people just are losing their minds because they're thinking, how can this possibly be, you know? But the thing is, while the Democrats have just been saying very vague things about how, you know, they, you know they've been signaling all this anti-white stuff, thinking that it will translate, I guess, into, um, into uh, votes and so on. And all Trump has been doing is just been saying, jobs, jobs, jobs. And it seems like his message is actually winning because he's talking about a material thing that might actually benefit someone's life instead of some totally vague sort of virtue signaling that doesn't really benefit anyone.
0: It's starting to seem like it's almost not the content of an ideology that's important and whether your assumption is that your ideology is more benevolent and inclusive, but the kind of, but the actual veracity itself When you talk about virtual signalling, the thing that I always think is that it's such a low stakes gesture. It doesn't cost you anything to sort of say I'm up for trans, like you know, equality across all forms of identification. It doesn't cost any of us anything to Say that you know, and like, but it does cost to say I want a fairer, more equal society where people are genuinely represented. And for that, I am, I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to sacrifice what I have. And it seems to me that this fissure that formed, and I'll check out that water Ben Michaels thing. If you, if you think that's a, a good book to read to understand it more deeply, but it seems to me that the fissure begins. When the left make the decision to abandon uh, ordinary working people uh, in favour of vocalising and 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 demonstrating uh, uh, around its identity led politics it seems to me this is a significant movement just like the same way as you said that part of your feeling about the united states of america is experiential which i suppose is necessary as a journalist as much as you have to support your work through you know statistics and facts never something i've personally favored i say go with the old guts so it feels right print it um, but like uh, but but me when i like look at sort of far-right marches, so visceral, like say, like Tommy Robinson stuff in the United Kingdom, in England specifically, you know, sort of like football-oriented, gutsy, carnal, placard-waving, shouting, on the brink of fighting. The idea that those men might vote for the Labour Party seems absolutely ridiculous, when once the kind of, raw rage of working people feeling affronted and like they're not they don't have access to opportunity that this was a natural labor constituency and now that now that that's gone they they've that that whole territory has been abandoned now of, of my personal politics i i would hope inclusive and like i you know, because of my like, I feel like I've uh, my personal experiences somewhat um, emulate or have parallel like some of the stuff you're describing. I've retreated from a sort of uh, culture that's about hierarchies and status and fame and celebrity into a, a place of introspection and reflection and spirituality, which could be my age or middle age. I've got a family now. I live a sort of a different type of life. But it also feels to me to a degree that there's nothing real in that space, that it is a kind of a choreography, an exhibition, that there's no, there's no real value. There's no real love. There's no real willingness to, to sacrifice in order to create more fair and just societies just to make superficial ge- gestures that cost very little and to focus mostly on condemning others as opposed to examining and interrogating yourself myself and because like that's you know i i have to li- i personally have to stay very close to the line with my own morality and spirituality and my own behavior and my own conduct i feel very uncomfortable in a culture that's about blame condemnation
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, most of the, like, I mean, in my experience, at least the people who have, um, uh, who have really latched on to using these kind of, um, dogmas to signal their virtue and so on. I mean, maybe it's sort of like a cheap dig, but in my experience, they're always like really bad people, you know, and they're kind of trying to, uh, you know, it's such an easy thing to do, right You don't actually have to sacrifice anything to just publicly display these things and uh, you know so for example, when I um, first came to came to America, I spent some time in in New York and I was kind of like often among writers and things like that well journalists I guess and um, I did notice that there was kind of a really unpleasant, culture where every people would make a beeline for the person in the room who seemed like the most up and coming and the most, um, successful and stuff like that. Really disgusting. I mean, I just never experienced that before at home. You know, that's just not something I had to even really think about, you know, and again, you know, maybe that's slightly unusual because it's, it's a, it's a place like New York and it's among media people and so on. But, um, you know, the, the, the status anxiety that people have is not just in their heads. It really is there in the culture, you know, the, the, so when people feel that they have no value because they haven't, you know, they, they, they haven't expressed their status through, through, through a career or something like that. Mm. Um, they're, they're right in a way, you know what I mean? Like they actually don't have value as far as the, the values of the culture are concerned. I read an interesting study a while ago, which was this, it, it was kind of, inter- it was um, unusual in that it was very, it was a very long-term study. It followed people throughout their entire lives. And what, uh, and, and a lot of the findings in terms of happiness were very um, unsurprising. They were just think- things that we all kind of pretty much intuitively know. But the only thing that was unusual that really stuck out, stuck out for me is that they said that a lot of the people who really found happiness or, be you know, were, were happy people um, were able to make this transition, not quite in midlife, but in their 30s to some form of um, teaching others or being involved in some in building something, you know, so mentoring or building an institution or being involved in building something for the future that would kind of outlive them. So in other words, the, um, the, the narcissism maybe the, the, of our youth, uh, changes at a certain point in our lives and we actually have this desire. And I was weird because I read it and I really related to that. I did start feeling differently at a certain point. Um, I, I I became kind of less interested in just like, you know, my achievements and things like that. And I, I kind of felt like I had much more of a desire to be involved in some, in some way building something that would live long after myself, you know, that was not really about me. Um, so, but that's just a wisdom. I mean, we have to learn this now from academic studies, but that's like a wisdom that every society, you know, in human history has, has understood and like passed on to people. Um, but I do think maybe it's something we have to relearn. Like there has to be a way to, uh, to have people involved in, in, you know, and again, like this is kind of what I was saying earlier, like a lot of the people who end up in, you know, on the political right now, you know, are at least having a conversation about the way in which liberal society has kind of taken that from us you know, um, because the idea, it doesn't really value institutions. And the the idea that you would be interested in something that lives after yourself. Mm. Why would you want that? You know, you shouldn't you just be happy being a liberal individual, just maximizing your own liberty? You know, that is kind of the idea of liberalism, basically.
0: People don't talk enough, I don't think, about the That liberalism is kind of uh, underwritten by materialism, by the sort of we are demonstrably just in this bag of skin. That's what's real. So respect people regardless of what variety of bag of skin they're in. But there is, but the connections between us are not valuable. The groups that we form need not necessarily be considered valuable unless it's expedient to score a political point. There's something very materialistic at the eye that. that places the individual at the centre of human experience. Of course, we are already empirically living that. I, you know, I don't need any encouragement to recognise that my individual life is the most important thing. Every single experiential moment of my life places me at the centre. What needs to be nurtured and garnered in me is how my behaviour, my actions, affect other people. Where I can be useful to the whole. If my life is to have meaning and purpose beyond the variation. Of the fulfillment of my most base desires, I'm going to have to I- examine. A, a value system that goes beyond that fulfillment i'm going to have to look at uh, altruism altru- altruism compassion kindness again as you say very very simple ideas that in earlier societies wouldn't even have been the subject of academic study like the idea that oh you're not just this locust in time and once you're dead who you gives a shit anyways that we are part of a flowing thing it's interesting to me that liberalism is able to even c- hold on to ideas that like some of the institutions, such as Nation, uh, when they've all been hollowed out, when everything has been hollowed out. I feel that something like the Grenfell fire was such a bleak symbol of the hollowness, uh, uh, the hollowness of our structures, that no one can be blamed, no one one can be indicted for who caused this, why did it happen, that that now... There, there, there is there is no in- integrity to our structures. There are no it, it's integrity to our governance, and I don't feel like the real villains are these poor onanists on 4chan <laughs> wanking their lives away in some grim corner. But the total lack of meaning and purpose in what because when you listed all them people that have been sort of uh, deplatformed and sort of culturally assassinated, like a. Uh, uh, like milo and alex jones and Garrett- Gavin McKinn. there there are, is no left wing or liberal equivalency is it because that that which suggests to me that that must be the dominant mainstream view now you know because you can't cite a sort of a radical threatening figure you know and like these aren't people that i'm politically aligned with just to be clear i'm just saying that it's curious that the ones that are disappearing well I suppose you know I suppose Peter Tatchell is deplatformed on campuses and Jermaine Greer is but you know but they're precisely because they no longer are representative of this this uh, mainstream sort of chimera
1: yeah I mean certainly in here in the states the only people on the left who get a hard time and who get you know have to deal with a lot of attempts to you know, ruin their lives and their careers and stuff like that are actually the anti-war left or kind of like what remains of that. Um, and you know, there's even an attempt to, like, I had a journalist one time contact me and say that this person was writing an article about the connections between opposition to invading Syria and the far right. Okay. So she was trying to draw a connection between those two things. The implication, of course, being that if you oppose invading Syria, you must be a secret fascist. Right? That was like what the, the 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 implication of the article was that. And I knew when I when I got this email that 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 whatever quote I gave would be used in that way. So, um, so I I didn't give one. But uh, you know that that's just another example of what I'm talking about of why I'm wary of um, of how discussion of The emergence of these kind of political movements can serve as a way to for the system to reinforce itself you know like if we consider any other ideas look at all the terrible things that will happen and all the evil people that will um you know that are like the only alternative to this is kind of the message um so i mean the fact that the the anti-war left people are the only ones uh kind of tells you a lot about the nature of the system that dominates, you know, I mean, the whole, the whole, uh, basis for all of the invasions in the Middle East or the, the, you know, one of the ideas that was, I remember going around at the time of the Iraq war was like, we have to bring freedom to these, you know, (laughs) these people and, uh, you know, we have to bring freedom and democracy around the world, even if it means, you know, doing it violently and so on. They don't really, they don't really bother saying that anymore, but they used to. So it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's like enforcing liberalism, uh, violently, you know, actually. Um, so anyone who opposes the, 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 the forcing liberalism on the world, through, uh, bombs is a problem, right? And anyone who questions the basic liberal dogmas at home is a problem. Um, I think that kind of, that in one way does cut across the right left thing, you know, this, this is the, like that you know, people look back at, I think it's funny that we're even still getting sometimes movies and stuff like that based in the soviet union or people look at north korea and stuff like that and they think oh it must have been terrible to live in this society where we, everyone was constantly propagandized to and there was this this one ideology that you couldn't dissent from and that's exactly what we live in
0: yes oh my god one of the another of the value exchanges that you pointed out had taken place was a kind of uh, as you were um a, alluding to just then is the pure like there's liberal puritanism that that do you think that given these kind of transitions and uh inversions that have taken place between what we once knew as the right and what we once knew as the left i.e the right becoming transgressive the left becoming puritanical that um old forms of say 20th century socialism have Uh, Could have a a political clout, or would you see figures like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn as a sort of evolved leftist populists, as opposed to just a a revival of the socialism of fifty years ago? Whatever.
1: I guess they're left populists, really. You know, and um, you know, I mean, I hope both of them win. Personally, you know. uh, I you know I think I think the kind of economic reforms that they're suggesting are you know sometimes talked about as very radical, but I mean particularly in the American case, I think they're the bare minimum of what needs to be done to save the place from total collapse actually <laughs> uh, because you know if you look at something like Like in america right now california is the future i mean this kind of brings together a lot of this stuff this is a place where that is very woke right everyone's very progressive um but it's also a place where you have a very high number of billionaires and you have a shockingly high number of absolutely destitute people uh homeless people and so on and this hollowed out middle uh, in America, they say middle class, but I think what they actually mean is working class people who have a decent standard of living. Yeah. Um, and um, and that is the future, actually. You know, megacities, radical inequality, um, you know, a destroyed working class, um, and 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 kind of just like no values of any kind to to even help people to understand how sinister all of this is you know like because it's presented as as progressive like all the big corporations now like goldman sachs you name it are really eager to show that they're really feminist and they love international women's day and they they all do the rainbow flags on gay pride and stuff like that And it is definitely an ideology of replacing material equality, the the, the movements that were, that once kind of like really threatened, you know, um, the power of, of like plutocrats basically, those people are now untouchable. And one of the reasons is, well, there's many reasons. I mean, there's not really a very powerful organized working class to challenge them. There aren't really any big institutions to challenge them. And then they're also propagandizing to the public about showing how virtuous and how much they believe in equality um, they are. And so it really does, I mean, I think that is going to become so ridiculous that people will start to entirely see through it. But it certainly does give them a certain kind of veil of like... um, uh, caring about, caring about equality and so on. And the thing is, if you're a culture warrior, like if your main issue in life is, uh, these kind of, um, you know, the, the, these kind of progressive culture wars, then, I mean, one thing I often think is like, why bother, you know, why bother being on the left at all, actually, because it turns out the, 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 the plutocrats of Western society agree with you, you know, they love feminism too. Um, and they, they, they love having like uh, their, you know, to show how diverse their like panels are and, and so on, these kind of very shallow things. Like that's the version of equality that they have embraced and switched out the old one, which was about actual material equality. And, you know, all of this as well has really made me much more. I mean, I was always, you know, a socialist, actually, from a, quite a young age. Like I, I, Before I could possibly have even really understood what I was saying, that was always my impulse. But I think that my gut was right, actually, because radical material inequality is absolute poison for a society. Like the whole society is poisoned once you have that. Everything starts to break down. Um the, and, and the, the total the alienation that we're seeing um all of this stuff is part of that it is coming from that i think it's not right like people pe- you know if you have to walk over homeless people on your way to work in the morning that you are diminished by that you know what i mean that something has you know the, you you are like spiritually destroyed by that if you like as well it's not just because you know you are not in that situation. So you're fine. You know, the, the idea that we're going to have these, you know, this totally gated class of people living in these gated sections of mega cities and that everyone else will have to live in this like ruined society, basically. I mean, that just, that situation simply can't go on, you know?
0: Yes. Yes. And that we, yeah, that's fascinating, uh, Peter. I had a conversation years ago with with Peter Tatchell, and he said that in his experience, uh, it's civil rights issues, even though they have been f- Hard fought for, and people have died for them in the you know in the 50s and 60s, and you know with gay rights, obviously was was his area of expertise. He said ultimately the the the, his words the establishment or the powerful will yield, but he said that when you go near when you go near money, when you go near their economic reality, then the response is very very different. That's when the sort of the drawbridge comes up, and you feel the force is when you go near that. So it's like when you were talking about you know. uh, um like goldwin Sachs or whatever can they'll happily t- do sort of diverse panels and ha- have a degree of superficial equality in positions of power as long as it's not actually affecting their ability to exert influence and control resources there's there's no problem there so in a sense um, one thing that is perhaps heartening is that the current political discourse, re, you know, the uh, elections in the United States next year, and the elections in my country l- next month, are to a degree focused on anti-austerity. You know, although of course it's continually being refocused, and it's it's, it's very diff- it's difficult to imagine success for and jeremy corbyn's labor or bernie sanders democrats isn't it and but, but do you would you would you say that there is at least some positivity in that uh, material inequality is partly the focus of those campaigns
1: yeah definitely and it's it's a very positive thing it's it's such a shame that that brexit kind of threw everything off in a way um uh because you know, it is kind of a separate issue, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that these figures kind of emerged at this time because, you know, out of the, that sense that people have the, the radical inequality, um, and that is positive, but, you know, well, I don't want to say, I mean, what if they lose, right? Like what if both lose? And, um, I think that's very possible. I I think one of the things that's going to happen is that people on the left will kind of double down instead of learning a lesson from it. You know, the left has a remarkable ability to do that. Um, And, but I don't know, we'll have to see.
0: In a sense, it suggests the end of that 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 kind of politics to me. uh, Like possibly in, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if if in any event. But in the in the event that they lose, it it seems that we require a massive revision in the way that we regard. these kind of divisions and these kind of solutions it seems like where next how do you like the power is so remote from the people that it impacts and so veiled and obscured that any iteration of what's gone before however you want to uh, populate those chambers with whatever hue of, of people I don't see how it can deliver on the hard edge of poverty you know what it what it's required to do let alone start looking at perhaps the some of the you know like, uh, earlier the reason a few things that i want to say angela while i still have you is that the reason i love this book is because i thought that it was all um, in its in your analysis prof- prophetic the way that you charted the journey from these sort of marginalized online spaces into the mainstream and it's a condition that has uh, only been expediated the, the, in the couple of years since you wrote it. And in the, I would say, beyond non-judgmental tone, compassionate tone that you took, particularly to the sort of uh, the monsters of the perceived right, it suggested to me a co- that... But that's where the solution lies in an acknowledgement that now that there are these online territories where people are fulfilling their community needs, where they have no tribal identity in real communal spaces, the more uh, malevolent aspects of their nature, particularly stifled as they are, atomized as they are, are likely to lurk and fester in those online rooms, in those online worlds. And for... I'm very curious to, to to you know hear your diag or prognosis for you know where we're heading now. But I suppose I've picked up a degree of that. You just described a dystopian hellscape where people are in like either in the gated communities or in the gutter. Um, but I uh, earlier another thing I, I want to sort of fire in your general direction is that earlier on you talked about a kind of, you know, a resurgence of religion. And of course, the, the, you know, those institutions carry a lot of baggage, particularly in extremists. But I w- wonder if uh, <clears throat> new types of communities, the the revivification of a spiritual life, particularly if it's non-denominational, non-orthodox, non-traditional, do you think this could play Apart in new ways of connecting, communicating, and aligning with one another, a sort of a resurgent spirituality.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I definitely think you're already seeing that. Um, I also think that there will be, I mean, I have friends, you know, as I said, who are like becoming Catholics and things like that. It's very strange to me coming from Ireland to meet these people who are like very, you know, really left wing all from Protestant backgrounds almost always becoming Catholics. It's (laughs) really strange.
0: We've got this thing, Catholicism. It's brilliant. It's this new thing. (laughs) Oh, fucking hell. We've just got rid of that.
1: Well, I guess the thing... I was thinking about why Catholicism, you know? Like, what what is it that, like, uh, uh, you know, their own Christian, you know, tradition doesn't have or whatever? Um, And there is something about... Well... One of the things I think possibly is that in America, a lot of the Catholic, uh, the ethnic groups that are Catholic, have internal solidarity, kind of to the extent that anyone has it in America. You know, like so. In other words, there is an Italian community even still to some extent. You know what I mean? There, and then there's the kind of Latin American influence and so on. One friend I know who's. You know, very far left who's become, a, who started going to mass. Uh, I, I was asking him about it and he said that um, he said that basically like the he, he, he became very tired from the incredibly poisonous world of politics and that he found that when he went there, people were there at their families everyone was just being nice to each other you know there was a sense of community people were helping each other out stuff like that um i mean if you think of the thing i was saying earlier that some uh, you know a lot of millennials don't have any friends whatsoever and are also alienated from their family like it is quite scary i mean i've had to think about this here as well if you don't come from that world, you take for granted that if something happens to you, you get in an accident or, you know, a tragedy happens in your life that you, you know that you have this network of people around you who will take care of you in those circumstances. And, you know, like, uh, people are not meant to live people. That's how people are meant to live. You know what I mean? Like it's not natural for people to live in a situation where, if they die, like, nobody will find them for weeks, or, you know, if something terrible happens, and they'll be completely alone. Um, so religion, I think, is, like, definitely fulfilling that role. The other thing I think about possibly the, the attraction of Catholicism, which I've been trying to figure out why this is happening, um, is that the Catholic Church always kept its appreciation for the aesthetic, you know, like... Churches are very beautiful. Um, you know, you will see like beautiful stained glass and and um, you know murals and things like that. Um, and it has its whole cult of the saints, you know, which are which is totally not in the Bible. It's actually, you mm-hmm. know, just like has no relationship at all to 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 but the the. the the um the very anti-Catholic kind of tendency within Protestantism is totally right about that. Um, but nonetheless, it so it provides like community, it provides beauty. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I remember talking to people about doing what would I do for my second book, and I suggested like I'd love to do something on beauty as a public good, you know, like the the collective public experience of beautiful things is like a very important. Social phenomenon which kind of exists like all over the world throughout so many different cultures. And one of the things people said to me was like, that will be just that will be called uh, implicitly fascistic
0: because because the idea
1: of beauty is a preoccupation of of the fascists, and you know, they, they, they wanted to build all these grand public things and so on. As did everyone in the 20th century, so, you know, but th- that's what I'm saying, like, you know, one of the the, the problems with, with all of this is that when people looked at these emerging communities, as I say, they kind of doubled down on all the worst things that created them in the first place, mm-hmm. and one of them yeah. is just not allowing people to kind of, not allowing people to have any, to even think about any kind of values outside of liberal secularism, without immediately accusing them of being sinister in some way, you know, and, and that, that's not a way that anyone wants to live either. But in terms of spirituality, I definitely see that happening. And I, I also have a hunch. I've been, I've been kind of good at predicting things, right? Like I was the first person who wrote about the incel thing, um, in the baffler many years ago. And, and, and I was the first person to write about the old writing. So I think I have a good nose for these things and you know, regardless of whether you think it's good or bad or whatever, I'm just thinking one thing that I think is going to happen is that there's probably going to be something like the back to the land movement, um, which happened in the seventies. I think that the, um, I think that the kind of megacity thing is reaching a point where, you know, everyone I know who lives in in a place like that, who was very excited to live there a couple of years ago is now like really thinking about like, why am I paying over half of my income to a landlord, which makes my life, you know, just a constant, a constantly stressful uh, thing people, I think if people are going to move to the countryside. I think people are going to become more spiritual. All that stuff is going to happen. I
0: think there's a lot of post-structuralist rhetoric that I really enjoy. A lot of stuff in Foucault that's about unraveling historical narratives that I think is brilliant and beautiful, tearing apart many of the institutions and, and systems that have been used to oppress people for in, for you know centuries. But the the suggestion that there is no universal that there is nothing that there is no sort of magnetic um uh Mm, sort of inner world that we're all sort of migrating towards unconsciously for me is problematic and you know like the the idea that people don't want to die alone in cells that people want to have connection with one another want to organize in groups want that, it suggests to me that there there are sort of like there are anthropological necessities there are realities to who we are and if you think that one of the you know like when you talk about the right's take on a lot of leftist Rhetoric, the, you know, stuff around, say, gender and sex, etc. Like, well, there is such a thing as biological. Then uh, there's chromosomes. There's shit we can look at. You know, of course, like. <laughs> There, there's no doubt that people have been oppressed because of superficial details and cultural uh, and cultural inflections for far too long. But by declaring that there, there almost is no truth, there is no real thing towards where no. How can you build values? How can you build values or systems or connections or community unless you have a, an agreed upon set of shared values? That it's not okay for people to live in isolation. That you know that the the ninety thousand homeless people in California is a sort of a, like is a testimony to 90,000 people that don't have one person that loves them enough to go, "Oh my God, you can't live there under that bridge or in these emerging second shanty towns in the middle of affluence sort of cropping up new tarpaulin nations. The thing you said about Catholicism and the love of beauty there, Angela, made me think that there are limits to what can be achieved through materialistic rationale, that we are not just rational, well I go here and I do this and I do that, you know like the return to the land thing I think that sounds appealing but it's somewhat in my view at odds with what you're observing around, and I'm not going to argue with you because you're spot on in your other book and for all, like in a couple of years perhaps that's what we will be doing, waddling off to the allotment spade in hand, who knows, our next podcast will be recorded on vinyl or something, I don't know, twigs written down in semaphore, but but like my um, but my point is that also in Catholicism, I felt that there is a kind of a carnality, a kind of a sort of a like that the relationship with flesh and blood is being spiritualized, a transcendent relationship with the body, a translate, a, a transcendent relationship with time. I like the thing you said about uh, beauty. It made me think of your uh, countryman oscar wilde there and like you know for all his frivolity and wit and you know and occasional pronounced superficiality when he talks about beauty particularly i think in sort of like some of his letters and in his children's writing he finds such um god such sort of a deep sentiment about like the the the, the relation in the relationship between truth and beauty and a beauty I don't see as fascistic as a sort of a way of standardising this is what a man looks like, this is what a woman looks like, if you're not that you can fuck off and die under a bridge, but more of a sort of a, a kind of a portal to divinity. To, to the, the suggestion of an ulterior world, which we are all participating in, perhaps in our innermost, our, our our innermost being, our our innermost selves, we are not defined by and determined by the the sort of the lumpen and the gross, but that we that there is a refined and beautiful world from which we are emanating, and beauty, a kind of. Super linguistic or beyond language version of that, a kind of a sort of a visual music. And I thought, yeah, so uh, the, I noticed, I, I, I'm i willing to admit, Angela, these aren't questions that I'm doing. You know, that when you stop talking, it's not a question that I ask. It's more like I <laughs> empty some words into a skip and then push it in your direction.
1: Well, yeah, but the thing is, so if you start talking about something like beauty. It will be interpreted in that way, and it's so absurd that we even need to think about that. But also, um, you know, one of the observations Oscar Wilde made is that, like, being uh, living in an environment in which man-made things are are ugly, are uglifying the world, is, um, you know, it, it it tells us that, you know. Man is inherently bad, basically, and that all we can do is ruin the ruin the earth, you know. Um, and that's something that you just imbibe from, from, you know, the fact that you know. So many times I look around, you know, like say Dublin, and there are parts of it where the architecture is is very beautiful, um, and then there are other parts where I think, you know, did this person do this as some kind of act of hate hatred of the public (laughs) that we are now going to be forced to look at this like just um you know or even if you think of something like I mean something maybe more controversial like nationalism so nationalism obviously you know the, the the right is more nationalistic or whatever but you know, you can criticize nationalism, right? And you can say we wouldn't have had, you know, various wars if people had not been full of, you know, like nationalist zeal and so on. And that na- nationalism excludes people from the outside and so on. But nationalism also is something that, well, first of all, it allows for citizens with rights to exist, and it mm-hmm. um, and it allows them to to. it it kind of, um, it allows people to be selfless in a way, right? Like, why does somebody do something for their country? A good example will be something like James Joyce, right? Joyce is always used in Ireland as an example of somebody who had to get away from Ireland because of the insular backward nationalism that became part of 20th century Ireland. And... You know, he was this kind of cosmopolitan, right? Like he he lived in Europe and he he, he uh, was very critical in the way that he portrayed, you know nationalists in in his writing and stuff like that, uh, certainly in Ulysses. But he's also somebody who loved his city so much that he wrote this incredible book, which which maps out every inch of the place. Um, he never stopped thinking about home and he also, you know, for example, like opened a cinema <clears throat> in Ireland, which was, you know, there the weren't, I guess, many around at the time, maybe it was the first, I'm not sure, um, at, for the purpose that the people of the city should be able to see the great, you know, cultural achievements of the world. So on the one hand, he was a cosmopolitan. He did appreciate, you know, the, the cultures of the world, but he did also have a love of, you know, how could you even make sense of an idea like that? Why would somebody volunteer their money and their time to give something to a people? If you don't even know, if you can't even say what that people is. And so in a way, you know, Again, this is why ideas on the right have this draw because they are at least talking about that. you know they can say the nation is the thing that we, um, that mm-hmm. we will pull together around, you know mm-hmm. and we will be united around. Now you can criticize that but you have to have something else. you know you can't just say everything is fascism and so we have to just live in a, a total chaos of individualism. You know, which is in which people have no way of organising, no way of having any solidarity and ultimately no way of fighting back against this very unequal, very plutocratic system in which, you know, democracies are basically bought out. And um, and yeah, we, we have no way of fighting against it.
0: You're so brilliant. Now, uh, can I just run through these uh, last... uh, uh, I don't know what they are. They might be... They could be termed... Yeah, these actually are questions. Can I ask you them? And and we'll wrap up, Angela. Okay. What do you think about the Joker and it's of the way that it's been culturally received? Do you think there's anything significant in that that relates to the stuff you've written?
1: Oh, I heard everyone saying bad things about Joker. And I think it's because they went in having heard so many good things about Joker, but because I had a very bad um, impression or low expectations of it, maybe, I really liked it. I thought it was great. Um, You know, it wasn't like, you know, the most profound work of art I've ever seen, but it was, no, it was really good because actually I think what it captured is, the moral ambiguity you know uh that i have always found very interesting like you know so he's in the end he you know kills innocent people and he does all these bad things but um but what it shows you throughout is that kind of alienation i'm talking about and also it really gives you a sense of like how much how much pain and alienation can a human being actually tolerate, you know, Um, you know, and, and it just, it's so relentless, so dark. It shows, you know, how, how this person has just, you know, is in this status oriented society and has this very low rank within it. And it's just sort of ground down and ground down. And I just think like we should be thinking about like, why it is that people have had to why it is that people are forced to live in that way and um and yeah that that moral ambiguity, I really like that about it. It's not saying because he has had these experiences then the killings are okay. You know what I mean? It's not and and when you when you are talking about political things, you always get trapped with people in this very simple moralistic way of viewing it. You I, I'm interested, I what I like is the is the moral ambiguity and it's able to say it can be simultaneously true that a person can do terrible things and maybe even become a terrible person and that they have also suffered terribly you know
0: mm. why do you think it garnered so much criticism
1: um i think because it was seen it was seen as like justifying incel shooters or something like that or maybe romanticizing them in some way but you know it's not the job of artists to be teaching us you know like public health lessons or something like that you know (laughs) it is morally ambiguous and as i say i like the fact that it just left us with this problem that as i said both can be true at the same time you know it's not saying it's not a morality tale that says you know oh everybody who you know, somebody who does, who starts shooting people and who becomes violent, you know, becomes a violent incel, actually that's okay because they have suffered in these ways. It's not saying that. It's simply saying, you know, you have this totally unbearable level of suffering and humiliation in a person's life and powerlessness.
0: It's curious to me, I think it somehow encapsulated the the, uh, appetite to repress stories that explore the consequences of creating a caste of people that are excluded you know one of the themes that i think is emerging through our conversation is that liberalism is creating a, a kind of um baseless rootless individualistic nihilistic space in which that it's possible that toxic ideas can emerge in opposition to that because there, there is nothing, There is. It's, there's just a shell, there's no truth, there's no veracity, there's no genuine project, except, it seems to me, creating a world of people that have no choice. But to use a phrase you used earlier to, uh, uh, yeah, appropriating their primal impulses and creating a consumer culture where the only expression left for us to mitigate and manage our emotions is to acquire some new product i think about how just you know i can't you can't be alive in the world without it it, like if you try and listen to the radio you try to listen to a podcast whatever you do you will be directed towards your role as a consumer pretty quickly you've got to watch this advert if you want to watch this youtube video if you turn on your wireless if you walk out the street i'd like well i watch football and i thought like how many times during watching a football match i'm inundated with logos and commercial imagery just it's taken for granted that these are the tributes that need to be made that this is you know that whilst liberalism flounders to find some depth and real meaning something for which it's um you know members are willing to sacrifice there is the sort of i would not say secondary i would say ulterior ideology of consumerism that is motoring the entire experience, remaining unaffected by the superficial changes and the gestures around uh, diversification, that 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 project continues untrammeled. The interests of the powerful are not affected by the uh, objectives of liberalism. Hence, liberalism can be used as a kind of terrarium for the mainstream, a kind of cultural housing, because it doesn't impede the economic and power objectives of uh,
1: oh yeah what? no doubt i mean the 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 kind of um you know um the, the liberation of the individual and equality in the form of a kind of tokenistic cultural diversity at the top can totally coexist forever with you know the system as it is now, the economic system as it is now. You know they're they're non-threatening to it.
0: Thanks, Angela. I now I feel like you have given me all the information any human being can reasonably be expected to give another person over Skype. It's really, really lovely to see you and um, meet you even in this format I'm such a, an admirer of your writing and your thinking and the way that you tell stories and I'm very excited to see what you do next and it, to see if that is indeed the good life thank you by which I mean the Richard Bryars uh, sitcom in which he just sort of went back to the land and grew vegetables <laughs> Adam Curtis or like criticizes me always when I'm talking about sort of various forms of utopia. He says people are going to want to do more than sit around and eat vegetables, but he'll listen to this, and perhaps perhaps he's wrong. People will just sit around, grow and eat vegetables.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean he, he he's very critical of the back to the land thing um, and how it all ended up and how it actually ended up. There's a really interesting book which Adam Curtis um, I think was very influenced by uh, which is by Fred Turner. And I think I might reference it in my book as well. I can't remember. Um, and it's called from counterculture to cyberculture, something like that. And it's about how a lot of the key figures in Silicon Valley, the foundational figures were actually from the back to the land movement. They were actually counterculturalists themselves. And they were the ones who kind of built the idea of like being like a rebel capitalist, you know, like disrupting and all that kind of stuff they that that whole ideology that that is really emanating from silicon valley now that's where it came from um so yeah adam Adam curtis does love to and i do too like to to show this like utopianism followed by the maybe the unintended consequences or something like that um and maybe it is just like the, the endless like pendulum swing of overcorrection that we'll just do forever, you know, um, uh, and something terrible will come out, but who knows, but, uh, but regardless, I mean, I just think that is likely to happen the rise of spirituality and a return to religion and also people intentionally and in a kind of fairly organized way leaving uh, the major cities. I think that will happen. The economic pressures are there. The exhaustion is there.
0: Um, mm. and,
1: you know. I mean, obviously, the better thing would be that we could uh, get livable rents. <laughs> uh, but if, at a certain point, people, at a certain point, particularly when a political project fails, people get exhausted by that and they retreat into solutions that are within one's grasp you know so if we can't get uh, if we can't get a party in power that are going to actually address the rent crisis we'll just all move out to the middle of the countryside you know (laughs) yeah
0: oh angela thank you so much it's a really wonderful conversation very educational for me and i'm sure for everyone listening thank you thank you Remember to let me know what you thought of it on Instagram, tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, have a listen back to some old episodes like Yuval Harari, You could listen to that. (coughs) Brad Evans, you could listen to that or you could just listen to this one again. Couldn't you really? I mean, did you absorb all of it? What if you had to do a quiz now? Would you you think you could competently and confidently talk about 4chan? Of course you couldn't. (laughs) Please sign up to our mailing list on russellbrand.com so I can communicate directly with you. You'll be first to know about upcoming live shows and receive exclusive mailing list-only content, plus have the opportunity to email us and get into communications on all manner of complicated personal issues. Let's say you're having difficulty in your personal life. You can just email us and go, help, help, someone will reach out to you. Isn't this amazing that the world's moving in this direction? Thanks very much for listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand, on... Luminary Media